Hello and welcome to our podcast on the EU Mercosur trade deal. We are Emma, Reshma and Simon, students at the National University of Ireland in Galway. As part of the International Human Rights Law Clinic, we are working with activist Sergia, a member of Talambeo, looking at the intersection between the EU Mercosur trade deal and human rights. We are examining what impact the EU-Mercosur trade deal will have on the environment and how the agreement will be in contrast to international human rights standards. This is our third episode. You are listening to Sersha, Reshma and me, Simon, interviewing Juliana from BLF. Now enjoy! So hi everyone and thanks for joining us. Today we have Juliana Sassi with us from the Brazilian Left Front and I was going to read out a whole bio but actually it'd be far more interesting to hear Juliana introduce herself and just the work around the Brazilian Left Front and what they do, who they are and then we can get into the meat of the podcast which will be talking about Mercosur. So Juliana, thanks a million for joining us. Hi, thank you. So, um, a quick introduction, BLF uh, is a collective of Brazilians that uh, started in 2016, Q against the president Dilma Rousseff, so people just got together and started protesting against this, and since then we start to get involved more with Irish affairs, so we have been working around housing issues, and uh, we started as well engaging with groups that were talking about uh, the climate change and the Mercosur, I think, comes in this, in this context uh, when we are seeing how like, the things are changing and the impact of the deal in this context that we'll talk better today and it's huge. So about the deal, we protest against the visit of the deputy chamber president when he came to Ireland and met with president to talk about the goodness of agribusiness. Uh, we have been engaging in some meetings as well. I was, uh, I was from, I left this year, but I was member of the last committee. So I could also participate in some meetings with uh, uh, other stakeholders when was being that talked to the government about the impacts of the deal. And also an event that uh, uplift held last year that different people that would be impacted by the deal, like Irish farmers as well, took part and could bring a little bit of this big picture. So yeah, BLF basically engaging with Brazilians affairs to try to bring international awareness, but also engaging in struggles as people that as migrants are living in Ireland and are also part of this society. So there is these two things. Okay, excellent. And I suppose getting straight into talking about the Mercosur trade deal, what are the main aspects of it that the BLF have problem with or protests against? I mean, it's it's like it's everything. It's because it's not uh, some aspects and clauses that needs to be changed. It's the own structure of the deal that comes from a power imbalance of countries that are negotiating their positionality in the economic system. So we are going to be in the positionality of always selling raw materials, of selling all resources. And in, uh, in Europe uh, will be like selling technology, the products that we became even more dependent 
and we don't have this technology, we don't have the ownership of this knowledge that's being generated and even more uh, impacts of our life. So we are always going to be in this as a, de in a development country that like it's coming this idea since the, the 60s in Brazil, our position as a, develop, a country in underdeveloped né, in development that never developed itself because like our positionality is just sending raw materials and after buying back the final products from the industrialized countries. Né? So this is one of the main issues. And from this, as a country that's subservient, it's, I don't know if this is an English word, but it's, <laughs> that's like dependent in this global economic chain, chain, the internal power relations are also very problematic. So when we think about the production, the workers are being super exploited, not just exploited. So it's like more intense, this kind of thing. So we still have uh, cases of uh, slave labor in agribusiness, in you know, monoculture plantations, this kind of things. Indigenous people working in these conditions as well for farmers that uh, kill their families, for example, you know, that they are in the war, but they need to go to work for them because if they don't, they don't have how to produce because their land was already contaminated by pesticides, by all these kind of things. So they don't, even though they might have their land, they don't have uh, how to produce there anymore. So it creates a new dependency and they need to sell their labor force to the farmers, the agribusiness that are the only one that will benefit from this deal. So many things <laughs> and ecological impact. You made a really... A really good point there, because we, we've spoken to a few other people kind of, you know, on looking at different angles of this. Um, and one girl we were talking to works specifically on, or a main um, big part of her work is on trying to put in these like, you know, sustainability and transparency mechanisms into trade. And we asked her, does she think these trade deals can never be like ever be a force for good? Or are you always trying to just like temper the very worst of them? And... <laughs> she was she was saying like yeah she does not know and she's like she she doesn't know you know and it, I thought that was interesting considering like she's working on that and even she's not convinced that these trade deals in any form can be in any way unequal and I really like that point you made there about the um this whole lie of progression and development like you know they always think like countries are just it's kind of more of a temporal process they'll get there in 60 70 years when in fact they, they never can if they're trapped within though like that type of kind of you know um raw material export and in in these trade deals um, and I think that's this idea that yeah it's um it's like your teenage years eventually you'll grow out of being a developing country but it, it's completely false like it just doesn't work at all and I was just interested in what you were saying there about the, the 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 power relations in within Brazil. Would you say that these power relations are exacerbated or revealed by these big trade deals, or by have they been um, ramped up in expectation of deals like Mercosur coming through? 
what we can see that uh, Bolsonaro was elected to to make some changes, like very strong uh, cha changes. So some law projects have been proposed during this, these years that uh, has a huge impact on the production. And we see as a way of open the way for this deal. Uh, at the same time, they want to do it. This when the idea of to do the European Union Mercosur deal arrived, they also have the idea to do the Alka deal as well, but it uh, was uh, it didn't go forward because there were already this thing against imperialism from US, but uh, we didn't have this view about, like there is not this view about Europe that strong as against the US, so the Mercosur deal is still going. But yeah, as we can see, I read these measures in place. And I wrote some uh, at three, I think three projects that are very, uh, might impact very much in these relations. Like there is a project of uh, amendment of the constitution 187, that uh, it aims to allow extractivism in indigenous land, like uh, hydroelectrics and all these kind of things. And other projects like the project of law that was proposed by Bolsonaro himself, uh, 191, it also aims to regulate uh, the kind of extractivism in indigenous land and this kind of mining and all that's very damaging for indigenous people. And in all this, pro in, uh, in this both, these projects of law, they are against the International Labor Organization measure 169 that say that always the indigenous people needs to be consulting about uh, changes and impacts and laws that are being created uh, about uh, their lands. So there is all these things being pushed forward. And uh, there is also the Marco Temporal that's an idea of uh, reinterpreting the constitution because the 1988 constitution says that indigenous people has ancestral rights to their territory, but now they are trying to change that like people. So that's the way the, the process of land uh, it's judged. So the indigenous claim that this is their ancestral lands, anthropologists go there and prove this kind of thing. So they have the right of their land. So the lands are demarcated. Now they want to change for the indigenous people just have the right of the territory if they were there when the constitution was signed in 1988. So it means that all the indigenous people that have been removed already by the state and forced uh, movies or by the agribusiness don't have rights of their land. So this is a massive issue that the indigenous movement in Brazil are fighting again. And this is still there. So this is more like the, the juridical, né? the changes that would be more juridical, but there is also what uh, a far right discourse can bring. That's like the humanization of people. So it legitimates more advancement of the indigenous land, uh, quilombolas né? that are black people that's descendants from people that was slavered, slaved, enslaved. Yeah, that was enslaved. Yeah. So these kind of things are so the number of cases of people invading their lands also surge. I was just gonna say, are these changes that you're talking about, those judicial changes, are they have they already come into play or are they kind of in the works at the moment? 
yeah, they have been worked. So they were approved in the Congress, but still needs to be sent into a special commission. So they are in this process. But many projects of this kind came. Some was like too brutal, so was already archived. But these ones are still going forward. They weren't stopped. Obviously, human rights violations are already a big issue in Brazil at the moment. And they're supposed to increase these violations once the deal has been ratified. And also what is closely linked to the deal as a problem is deforestation. And I'm just curious, I, I would like to know more about what the general public in Brazil knows about what's going on about the deal uh, itself and also about the issues around it, about deforestation and human rights violations. So I suppose uh, the majority of the general public um, in Brazil knows about what's going on in the, in, in, in the Amazon region. But how does uh, the Brazilian government address the situation? And do they just stand and watch or do they take measures against, let's say, often illegal deforestation or those human rights violations? About the public perception about the deal, it's not something that has been discussed a lot because uh, the deal is not like publicly discussed. It's another feature of this, that the civil society, the people that should be constituted, it's not involved in this process, the top-down approach. And also what's being discussed is these specific measures when they go to place, like uh, this project of law, in the, uh, these specific things that are happening, but people understand as a way of open the way to the deal, like the APIB, the Association of Indigenous People in Brazil, when they come to, to Europe in 2019, they, po they position themselves against the deal. So there is this understanding, but it's not, uh, it's not something that's in the, is in the news or people are debating too much the public about the deal. No, it's about like specific things that are happening. And also because we are having this COVID pandemic and we have a massive crisis now of 2000 people dying per day. So there is loads of things going on. So the deal wouldn't be the main issue and how the government uh, treats this kind of deforestation. Uh, it's, they just laugh at it. They just uh, say whatever. They, one time is Leonardo DiCaprio fault, uh, other time, uh, you know, it's the only indigenous people that's doing this because they're against the government, the leftists, the NGOs. He even said that was the NGOs that was putting the fire. So. It's just this kind of madness that creates confusion and the debates just go very low. And in the end, you are just like the, the saying the obvious that like people should have the right of uh, living in their territory. And yeah, and uh, yeah, about um, there is a studies when we saw these fires in Amazon that repercuted in the world that NASA could show the images of the fire even. Uh, he fired the guy who was the director of the institute that released the, the, the study. So that's how it's being dealt with. Like, I don't know, Simon, think of like it, trade deals, even, even here, like the whole CETA thing over the last four months has been really hard to communicate to people. And it's not like a, it's not an easy or catchy topic to engage with. And I think that's, I think one of the problems with trade deals is they're quite convoluted and abstract 
and so even when the information is available it's often not digestible so it, it doesn't surprise me that it's not a massive topic for debate in Brazil like even like even more I don't know simple problems I find it are more more obvious like I think investor courts for instance are you know they should be a really easy thing to get people protesting against but they're still not even really very easy to communicate like it's so much easier I think to look at something happening right in front of you a physical thing like I suppose that, yeah, that, yeah that's globally so it doesn't it doesn't surprise me at all actually I, um, I totally agree like every time I tell someone here in Germany that I'm working on a project about the EU Mercosur trade deal everyone's always like oh what what's that I've never heard like of uh, that trade deal um same with CETA and all the other like TTIP um, it's always yeah. the same. No one knows about these deals and issues around it. Yeah. I mean, the workers, the formal groups, they are aware of like the whole population, but the the groups that are affected by, they are against this. But yeah, yeah. as I said, it's not like the main discussion, but all these other uh, measures that's been in, trying to be implemented that will support the deal, will open the way. I remember um, during that election campaign, the bits of news about about the election I, I did get, you know, Bolsonaro was using quite like very fascistic kind of language and talking about, you know, removing removing people from the land and people getting too much and taking more than they deserve, you know, deserved. And I was just wondering how has protests developed on, under Bolsonaro um, I know obviously COVID will have changed how people are protesting but you know was there a, a crackdown on freedom of expression on freedom of protest after he was elected now we can see a bit more because people start calling him genocide because of the pandemic and he started uh, sending people to jail like bloggers, youtubers this kind of uh, people so yeah, he started. Uh, they he's using a law that was created during the dictatorship that he loves so much. That's about um, when you are committing a crime against national security. So he's using this law to target uh, people who have been calling him genocide openly. And even if I suppose. Most of the population is totally against um, Bolsonaro's politics. Are there still like a lot of people who are in favor of his poli politics? Let's say, possibly, uh, there are, for instance, um, Brazilian farmers that have no other choice than uh, accepting the situation because uh, they are economically uh, dependent on newly created farmland and they have to support a family. So would you say that and generally there's also a majority that is in support of Bolsonaro's politics? I don't think in terms of uh, rural workers, because the, the composition, it's, it's very different than Ireland. We really have uh, massive landowners, so it's like a, a huge industry. So we would have the family, uh, we call familiar agriculture from like families. So it's small properties, 
I don't think they he would be supported by these people because all the measures are against this kind of small holding properties and production. And actually, these people who produce in this kind of uh, this form, they produce for the internal market. So 70% of the food we eat in Brazil comes from the small farmers that are the families. So in this sense, no, uh, but the agribusiness, yes, the, the big guys that are like, um, that wants this deal to happen because they will be exporting soya, cow and so on, they, they would support him. And I think they have one third in the Congress. So it's like they have a, they have a good few people there. Um, but he still have support in Brazil. Yeah, it's not that much anymore, but still he has support. Um, hi, I have one question to you. Like with respect to the indigenous people's rights, how far do you think the civil society organizations are involved in bringing like highlighting, like how this trade is, has got a lot more to do than just the normal citizen as well as the people concerning the indigenous. So like how is the civil society organizations coming forward to like in a forward like even with the government and highlighting the rights yeah the indigenous organizations they develop studies so the good thing about apib is that they have studies in english and in portuguese so they had uh, they released the last year a list of companies international companies that were operating in indigenous lands so people can also take responsibility for themselves because many times say, ah, Brazilians need to deal with their stuff, but actually our stuff is because uh, other people are, are there. So also to place responsibility for the groups that uh, in internationally that say that they care about the environment. So look, there is foreign companies here. So they did these studies. They did also, um, I think I wrote here about... Um, yeah, they did a study about the laws that impacted the indigenous people that was released this year as well. And I think it's also in English because they also do both. So they are releasing studies on the impacts of these legislations, just changes. But it's not necessarily saying that this is because of the deal. But they already positioned themselves in 2019. And when they are asked about specifically the Mercosur deal, that they oppose the deal. Um, just one question there when you were talking about land that was former indigenous land that is now that has now been taken over. Has there been much or is there even a a proven pathway to recovery of that land or to yeah re it being returned to indigenous people? Yeah, it was the, the FUNAI, the uh, Agency for Indigenous Affairs, that they would do this procedure to avail which land was for indigenous peoples and the anthropologists would be there. But um, Bolsonaro extinguished this procedure when he went and he wanted like to change the who would be doing this would be, uh, let me just check here one thing yeah he wants to one of his first measures was transferring the demarcation of indigenous territory from funai that's linked with the ministry of justice to the 
Department of National Institutes of Colonization Agrarian Reform to the Department of Agriculture. So who would be judging this process is the people from the Department of the Agriculture that's the main interested in opening the way from the agribusiness. So this change had uh, uh, also a, a huge impact. So you take from the Department of Justice and you place in the Department in the Ministry of the Agribusiness to demarcate the lands and the, the indigenous people are disputing with the agribusiness for the access to the land. So you can already see that there is a, the problem of partiality <laughs> very clear in this move. This one, one of his first measures. I just need to check this. <laughs> A lot of the farm organizations here in Ireland are um, are saying like, you know, they're against Mercosur, particularly because of the like 99,000 tons of tariff-free beef, even though I think there's already about I think 200,000 tons coming in yearly anyway from those countries, just not tariff-free from the Mercosur block. And what I often find ugh, not funny in a funny way, funny in a dis dispiriting way, is like one of the big arguments here you hear from farming organizations is like, um, oh, you know, you'll flood our market with beef. You'll flood our market with beef. Now, totally ignoring the fact that Europe is, the EU, sorry, is like master of flooding other markets with stuff, and particularly like milk from the EU completely has completely undermined milk markets in a lot of, West Africa and like they set up these huge factories completely destroyed native or like the yeah the native markets there um and now they're <laughs> what they you'll hear now the farm organizations they've been like well what about the indigenous people in Brazil and I'm like I don't know if you actually care that much or is this more about beef but whatever if you know if you're still against this deal then maybe that's fine but I suppose I, I'm coming a long way around saying so what it sounds like is what we have here in that the agricultural lobby in Brazil is massively strong yeah. um, and has a disproportionate impact influence on government would you say it's the strongest lobby you have or is there yeah are there other lobby groups that would rival it because I would I would say in Ireland, anyway, the agricultural lobby is one of our strongest. Yeah, we have the, we call BBB, that we have the in the Congress. That's the three strongest lobbying groups. That's agribusiness, the evangelicals that are growing a lot there, the security, like military and police forces. So these are the three. So it's a horrible combination together. And the, the evangelical Christians. Like yeah, evangelicals. And they are and they are also they are everywhere, like in in they are even in indigenous communities and telling people to don't get the vaccine and all this kind of things. So they are a massive trouble. And in the whole in all cities in Brazil, they are really spread and they have a huge representation in the Congress. They are the yeah. And they are against abortion, they have all the conservative agenda that also supports Bolsonaro and so they would be like this conservative agenda, the agribusiness, the economical part, and the repressive apparatus is as well there. Um, and I suppose one of the last questions I have is, do you think, I suppose that we're just asking you to speculate, do you think this deal will pass? Do you think this deal will be ratified? 
Uh, I, I'm really not sure. Right? They are saying now, last week, they're saying that they might do this uh, after 2022 when you have the new elections in Brazil and the people, the, the international trust in Brazil might be restored. But I, I, I'm not sure because the environmental impact of it, it's, it's, it's very big and it's not only about this deal, it's about how, like, how we approach things in society. And we are a moment in society that we need to seriously think about which model we want to follow. Because if you see the scientists who are saying that we have 30 years, we don't have like too much time to revert the impacts. I, I went for a holiday reading my last holiday, this book of Naomi Klein, Fire, and this is, it's very scary, the things that she's saying there. So if you think about it, about what we want and we need to bring back these discussions that we had a lot in Ireland before the pandemic about the just transition, this kind of stuff for farmers in Ireland, don't be complaining about meat in Brazil, but producing meat here because the greenhouse is going to be emitted anyway. So this kind of things really needs to be addressed. And we are really in a historical moment that we need to, to come together with these things. We cannot have the consumerism in the level that we are. It doesn't mean that anybody's going to starve. But it's it, it, again, because we have this level of consumerism just because we have inequality. So if we're talking about sending meat here, rural communities and indigenous people in Brazil are not eating meat for a long time. So it's not only about people having access to meat, it's who is having access and how much. There is a report here that you can take a look later that's very interesting about meat inequality. And uh, it was, who did, uh, it's from this Our World in Data. And uh, they talk about uh, how much is the portion of meat that people eat in poor African countries and in, and in Europe and so on, Australia. And, and you can see the inequality as well. So who is being, like who is having access to this product you're selling? And as well, the products that Europe is going to send to Brazil is just going to be restricted with the upper media class and the ruling class. It's not to be products that the majority of people is going to have access. So the ratification of uh, the agreement will entail, I suppose, negative impacts on the Brazilian population and on the whole world, but possibly maybe also some positive impacts because uh, ultimately the agreement might create new jobs uh, in the agricultural sector. What effects do these developments in Brazilian trade policy, especially with uh, the EU Mercosur trade agreement, already have on, on daily lives in Brazil? Yeah, I mean, in the general population, in terms of who will be specifically in work and on it is like the rural communities and i think the 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 jobs that are going to be created are unskilled how they are as they are in the chain of uh, production there they are unskilled jobs so everyone can go so it it's not what we want to see in the 21st century this kind of uh, relations that you have been seen for hundreds of centuries and since uh, colonialism came so we see that this kind of jobs and this kind of, you know, concentration of rent. Uh, and it's not only in Brazil, because if you see Argentina, you have uh, 3,000 families owning 70% of the productive land. 
So like this is huge. And uh, this is what we are talking is not like, like in Ireland, small farmers are like massive companies taking over of everything. And as well, if you think about technology being used as well, uh, machines, it, I don't know how much jobs can be created in the quality of these jobs. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. But closely related to that last question, um, in your opinion, what do you think social justice uh, in Brazil um, should look like? And how would you like to see living conditions and standards of uh, the population to generally being improved? Yeah, if you if you bring from the experience of this deal, And if you think how from this thinking society as a whole and how to address inequalities, it's like public consultation to constitute the people who is affected by it, but not uh, merely normatively, like just to, to tick the box, like I talk to this person. But when you talk to this person, you listen to the other side and build it together a project that's going to address these impacts and it's going to be good for everyone. But uh, we need to face that we don't live in a society that thinks in what's good for everyone. We live in a society that it is divided by private interests and public interests, and the public interests are neglected because of who is in the power is representing the private interests that put them in power or where they come from, who they represent as a business owner or whatever. So it's not like uh, social justice happens in this conflictive society in this divided society, nor like in a neutral space where individuals with different points of views come together to find a better solution. Uh, it's not how it happens. Uh, if it was, we wouldn't have this deal being, tra uh, being established in this such a way and we wouldn't be dealing with these problems it's still now. So I think to think about social justice, the people who is really affected by it needs to be involved in the process. But as I said, not only to tick the box because they really know better what's going on. Like when the first time that I went to an indigenous community in Brazil 10 years ago, so many things that I didn't know. You come from the universe, think that you know everything about exploitation, class struggle, and you're going to do the revolution in Brazilian countryside. No, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what's the impact of the thing. Sometimes you think ah, people need land, but uh, when you see that sometimes they have land, but they don't have how to work in this land because it's already damaged. So different kind of knowledges needs to come together. You know, the psychological impact of these long-term struggles against indigenous and rural communities in Brazil is also very deep. So you need to combine all these kind of things, you know, you need to think about all the things when you think in, in social justice, the psychological impact uh, uh, and so on. So yeah, it's a, I think it's a, it's a big way, but we can do this by legislating ourselves from our ivory tower. You know, we need to be in a horizontal place where we are going to listen, everyone involved and think in the, in the common good. But this would demand a rationality change in our society that I hope with this issue of the climate change can come because it's more urgent than ever. And uh, it really affects everyone. Yeah. If the guy much doesn't get uh, the rich people to mart first, so they might be safe. Yeah, Is thank you. A re really interesting and really good answer, in my opinion. So now we've talked about social justice and human rights violations, indigenous people's rights, and also the general public and how 
they see the deal. But one issue that we've been talking about a lot uh, the last couple of weeks, and that's also closely related to the deal and that we've touched to, of course, is uh, deforestation. I'm just curious, how far reaching are the effects of deforestation at the moment? Like what the, uh, what does the general public see and, um, and how do, do they react to everything that's going on? Like, do they see what's going on in the rainforest or do they, like, especially people who live in big cities, see what's going on, but kind of like accept what's going on? I think it was a massive issue just a bit before the pandemic with people really discussing these things, even the fire that started in Amazon, people in Sao, uh, in Sao Paulo for the city smoke. So it was a huge distance. And so people can see this and can understand the, this. And also because of the, it's, it's becoming too hot. So people can already see this difference and how it's dry. So I think there is already an immediate impact. So like how the seasons are not as it was before. So this kind of changes is noticeable. And uh, there is an, a huge awareness about these impacts. It's just because now, of, because of the pandemic, uh, this became a little bit aside. But you can also see that the, the regions where we have more these disputes, Amazonia regions now, if uh, uh, the cases of the COVID was dealt really worse, and we have like rich epidemic centers there where people are like really, really dying massively and being just, you know, thrown in this. Yeah, uh, I think there is a, a photograph that was released as well about these coffins, like all in the in the earth with people who died and it is in these regions. So you can see that also the impact of COVID is related with impacts that had before that comes from these relations with the land, with this kind of, you know, uh, already abandonment of the population from these areas. But yeah, people are, uh, are aware. That's a problem. Uh, when we talk about this trade agreement in all these, we highlight this environment, indigenous people's right. And what do you think as people like you and me, as consumers, like how far can we ignore this? Because I think in a way, we all have a part of it and we neglect it. So how can we as consumers, you know, highlight this? Like we too have a part of it. We are part of this problem. Yeah, I, I like to think in this, uh, in this ways, like our individual responsibility and our social responsibility and how do we link both? So, for example, by understanding the impact of meat consumption, I don't eat meat anymore. But of course, if I stop eating meat just myself, it's not a huge impact. So I try to connect to other groups and try to, to support other actions, even though I'm not like... Uh, like, as you said, we are not indigenous people, but uh, we try to support their struggles. So I think there is just two things, not only changing your, your habits and feel good about yourself, uh, but it is important to change your habit and feel good that you are doing a good thing, but also to also open space to groups that are fighting further for a change of, that's going to bring an alternative. So, because for example, if we keep in this level of inequality, even if we're eating quinoa here, people in Bolivia might not be eating. 
So it's like a huge thing. So I think we have a responsibility as individuals, but we really need to understand like the international impact of it and connect with bigger struggles and, and groups. Yeah, and I think um, I think like that sometimes it's sometimes too much emphasis is put on what we can do as individuals as almost a way of just like guilting us into into feeling like we are the sole problem. Like I I still, you know, I don't I don't eat meat, I don't eat dairy, but I also don't think I'm you know changing anything massively. It's just a small thing. Well I I'll do the most I can do. But I, I like I it nothing rankles me more than seeing them. I don't think it was BP of all people as an Instagram ad or I saw it on Twitter being like, oh, we can all do our bit and reduce our carbon footprint. I'm like, why don't you reduce your carbon footprint, BP, and like stop destroying everything? <laughs> and it's yeah, like it. I think everyone can do their bit, but I often find sometimes it's almost you know, you'll see companies say, oh, you know, you have to do your bit, but here, this is really cheap because of these massive trade deals we've lobbied for and you have minimum wage or less. So uh, make your choice. And you're like, well, okay, my choice is only within, like everyone's choices. Nobody has a hundred percent choice. Everyone's choice is like, you know, bound by certain parameters, be it geographical, financial, cultural, whatever. I think this is a huge issue about choice now because the liberalism is all about choice. Now you have the choice, the market brings more choice and you can choose whatever you want. And uh, this kind of things to know uh, what we can do, it's very important. So in Brazil, we have loads of uh, groups in, uh, in communities and favelas and all that talks about uh, how to do vegan stuff for people who cannot afford big stuff. And you are just like, you just go as much as you can. Of course, if you need to buy something and there is just in Primark, you are going to buy there. So I, I remember when Extinction Rebellion went to Primark, many people opposed it because it would be targeting poor consumers. And some people that were buying there, they didn't want to feel guilty because they didn't have uh, another option. So I think it's lots of things that we needed to, to think about. Like, I think Primark logic is horrible in the yeah. sense that it just create things to last for some months and after you keep buying again. So this logic is very destructive. But um, yeah, it's all, we always need to be careful about not guilting, but to bring responsibility because we have the responsibility, but as well in such level. Now we, not, we cannot say that like people with low impact has the, so much responsibility of, and, and choice. So yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah. do you think that whole talk about Primark, I remember that. And now I didn't see it, but I had heard afterwards that Extinction Rebellion specifically were saying, you know, this is not about people who are shopping here. But it almost kind of got out of control because people started acting like Primark was some sort of like pro-poor, you know, do-gooding kind of, oh, we just want to clothe the poor because we're Primark. And I'm like, okay. Primark are massively problematic um, and like they can't hide behind the fact that they produce cheap or they shouldn't be able to hide behind the fact that they produce cheap stuff but yes obviously then you can't shame people for shopping there now they did also that day I remember going to Brown Thomas because I suppose fast fashion doesn't necessarily just focus on the price but it's yeah it's, it's an odd one to to it's a it's a difficult balance to strike because places like Primark are really 
you know, they are massive problems as well. But um, anyway, we won't keep you any longer. It's uh, we've had you for almost an hour. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been really informative. Have you any other questions, Reshma, Simon? I just wanted to say, Juliana, thank you so much for finding the time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure and you provided some valuable information um, for our podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks a million. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.